So here's an unpopular take. I listened to Stephen A. Smith's takedown of Jason Whitlock from last week, and even though the internet loved it, I didn't. First, you don't always have to brag about yourself. We get it. You've had a great career. You make a lot of money. You're charitable and successful and famous. Seriously, we get it. But when you have to tell people how successful you are and how famous you are and how charitable you are, I don't know. What does it reveal about yourself? And secondly, the fat insults and more and more and more fat insults. Yes, you're right. Jason Whitlock is obese. But so I'm guessing are a good number of your fans. How do you think that makes them feel? Or anyone battling weight issues feel? It just, to me, felt cheap and sort of lazy and kind of lame. And when the subject is a buffoon sack of shit like Jason Whitlock, it shouldn't have been. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Michael Farber, the all-time great hockey writer for Sports Illustrated and the Montreal Gazette. This is episode number 347. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks and your face looks like a bowl of cereal that's been left in the sun for too long. Okay, Michael Farber, thank you for doing this. You and I are both alum of Sports Illustrated. We both worked there for decent chunks of time. You longer than than I did. Do you care or can you divorce yourself from places you used to work and just say, meh, it's the business? I can divorce myself from other places I've worked, but not Sports Illustrated. And I think you understand that better than most people because there was a time when there was no better place to work. Uh, I am so proud of the 20 years that I was there, uh, so proud to have been among the best writers I could think of. It was embarrassing at times, you know, how many really talented people that you were with. And I think we all at some point suffer from imposter syndrome and wonder, why are we there? You know, why are we in such good company? So it was such a special place that I feel for it. Uh, I mourn it to a certain degree. Uh, But to the last part of your question, yeah, I mean, it is the business. And I understand that and things have changed. And uh, I will remain ever grateful for the time I did have there. You wrote in Montreal for many years and you came to SI in 93. But correct me if I'm wrong here. Initially, 1989, you get offers from Mark Mulvoy at Sports Illustrated, Frank DeFord at the National, and turn them both down? Yeah, uh, I didn't like what the National wanted me to do, which was kind of a newsy notes hockey thing. Really didn't interest it. And yeah, I mean, Sports Illustrated had gone through a bunch of hockey writers. I don't know if you recall that period including Peter Gammons, by the way, there was something that said, gee, if these people were unsuitable for whatever reason, why are they going to like me any better? And I had a good newspaper job here in Montreal. I'd moved to this city from New Jersey in 79. I was comfortable. And so, yeah, I said, no, the interesting thing was that starting around then there was an SI Canada. So I wrote some for them and I actually wrote some for the magazine as well, including a piece on why no one wanted to play baseball in Montreal, or no Americans did, and why Quebec City people didn't want to play there. So I think that was the first piece I did for the magazine. Gary Payton was on the cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember the cover. So yeah, you remember your first time, right? Wait, I just want to say, interestingly, Michael Farber, my first story for Sports Illustrated, cover. Gary Payton as a Seattle. No. Yeah, I swear to God, first cover story. Uh, I wrote about, I was writing for the National Tennessean and I wrote a piece about uh, declaring my eligibility as a junior for the NBA draft <laughs> in a ran in a Gary Payton issue. So Gary Payton, there you go. There you go. Uh, wait, so it is kind of interesting. I remember when I was at the Tennessean, I was offered a job at Sports Illustrated and it was a complete and total no brainer because even though I worked at a newspaper that I really liked and was really good, 
SI was SI and I had to go. When you're in Montreal at the Gazette and you obviously you have a great career in Montreal, but SI, the SI comes. Is there not a worry that this is a, you know, one-time offer and you're never going to have another shot at this? Absolutely. But it quickly turned into, well, we have this weird little thing, SI Canada, and can you write for it? And I said, yeah, I can do that as a freelancer. So I developed a relationship with the magazine. Um, it, when it came up in 93, and you'll appreciate this story because you did work for Mark Mulvoy. I got there okay. just after he was done. Okay. So Mark calls me and I'm at in Philly at the World Series. Uh, you got to come right away and, and talk. I said, well, I've been on the road for a month covering baseball. Uh, I, I got to get home. And he says, well, go home right after and then come back down. So I fly back down a day or two after I go home and I sit with Mark for like 10, 15 minutes in his office. And that's it. And I fly back. And nothing happened. So now it's, that's late October, I guess. Now it's December, mid-December. He says, uh, you got to come right down. I got to talk to you. I said, I was there six weeks ago. Yeah, I'll come down, come down. So I went back down. They made me the offer. And that time I accepted. There had some things that had gone on in my life in 93. I'd lost my mother and my grandmother within a six-week period. I'd had some kind of heart problems in during the Stanley Cup final in LA. I couldn't slow my heart down. Happened again in the World Series. I knew I needed a change. I needed to slow down from newspaper deadlines um, because I feared I was killing myself. And I thought magazines, and this is pre-internet, would be kinder to myself and by extension, my family. So that played a big part in my taking the job. Was magazine kinder to you and your family? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because again, pre-internet, and as Mark laid it out, uh, you'd be writing on average once every two weeks. Now, uh, that's a little bit different than writing however many columns I was writing, plus plug columns, right? Early, you know, for the first edition, subbing them out, or if didn't sub them out, writing a sidebar. Uh, so it was so physically demanding of me, or the, at least the way I viewed the job, uh, that, yeah. And at first, it was exactly that. And uh, this, you know, golden age, not golden age. It was a good time to be at the magazine, and I was treated very well. I had Mike Bamberger on a, a bunch of months ago, yeah. and I remember being at a baseball game with Mike in Atlanta and I was a young writer coming up and he said to me, the way I view it, <laughs> I should be as comfortable on the road as I am at home. And that was his explaining why he spent like 450 a night to stay at the Ritz in Atlanta or wherever he was staying. What was the difference in sort of, I don't know, luxury journalism going from a newspaper to going to Sports Illustrated in terms of both, I guess, the stuff like that, like hotels, but also just as far as access to athletes. Yeah, uh, it's still at the time athletes wanted to be in the magazine. They especially wanted to be on the cover of the magazine, which, of course, nobody could guarantee. Uh, even when we hoped to put them on the magazine, hey, it was mostly hockey. And if you looked at the food chain, you had a much better chance of getting a baseball story on the cover than I had getting a hockey story on the cover. Uh, in terms of lifestyle, I was never a lifestyle guy. Um, you know, I wanted the hotel that was closest to the rink. Yeah. It was convenient. I, you know, I'm pretty simple that way. Uh, the biggest transition was learning how to write uh, or learning again, how to write. I was part of that class in 94. I started early 94 and Tim Layden, who was just beyond brilliant, Scott Price again, another, you know, a couple people, Mike Silver, Jerry Callahan. Well, at the time, one of one of those guys was having a little trouble making the jump from newspapers and in terms of how, how to write. So, you know, he was going from 800 words to 2,500 words. And I said, well, 
kind of what I'm doing or trying to do, and I don't think I was at all successful early on, was instead of writing a 2,500-word piece, writing three 800-word pieces. And, and that's pretty much how I made the adjustment. And I found the first year difficult because you, even though it was a sports writer, you didn't go to your office very often. There were, there were still people. And now you're out on an island. And you know, I wasn't going to call up colleagues and, and do that. You're, you're just on your own. So it, it took a while just to get used to the pace. And, and, you know, when you're writing a newspaper column, if you write a mediocre column one day, go get them the next day. Now you're like a starting pitcher. You know, you're not coming out of the pen. You're not going to be back out there the next day. And so if I wrote a story that I didn't think was very good, and you know how judgmental that place was, Jeff. Yeah. Um, boy, I mean, it just ate at you. So while it was better for my health, uh, it brought other kind of self-doubt creeping in, you know, whether I was really cut out for it. I would never have guessed that. I came up more through the bullpen. So I started there very briefly as sort of the fact checker, and then you're a writer, reporter, and all that stuff. And to me, guys like you and Riley and, I don't know, Russian, Phil Taylor, on and on and on, you guys are like these swashbuckly, <laughs> fantastic superstar writers that I aspire to be. Um, and I remember getting beaten down by the editing at SI, but I assume that was because mm -hmm. I was 24 and they just had no faith in me. To come in there in your 30s with a resume, you're saying there was still a lot of beating down from editors and a lot of self-doubt just being at SI? Not, not beating down from editors so much. I mean, it was more self-flagellation, I think. And I think the mistake I made, and this goes beyond that first year or two, I, I was too compliant. Uh, I accepted editing too easily. Interesting. Um, I didn't fight back as much as I should have. I didn't fight for my words as much as I should have. And it was crystallized when somebody who knew me and knew my work and kind of my sense of humor said, you know, sometimes it doesn't read like you. And I said, yeah, yeah, that, that's true. So not the back half, but maybe the back three quarters of my SI time, and it was 20 years, uh, I'm not terribly confrontational. Uh, but, you know, I fought. I, I will tell you one story about having to fight for something. Okay. And it involves a story invo involving Marc-Andre Fleury, then a Penguins goalie, who had been injured, and during his time out, an optometrist in Ottawa, hockey fan, a woman had noticed that he was wearing gold pads. And she wrote a letter to the, the Penguin saying, there are visual reasons why goalies are more effective wearing white pads. And he came back after being out for six weeks, and he had switched colors of his pads, his white pads. Fast forward to the playoffs, Pittsburgh's playing Ottawa, her team. And so I got a hold of this optometrist and I said, well, why did you do this? I mean, here you, you've helped the opposing goalie. I mean, that's just a absolute solecism. You know, why? Well, I'm a professional optometrist. I think it's very, very important. So this is the lead of the piece. Yeah. I, I set up the story and then I write because there is no I, E-Y-E, in team. So a senior editor says, I don't get it, and takes it out. Ugh. Well, I'm only telling that joke once. I am never going to have an opportunity to use that again. So I took it out. And so finally, I, I talked to the guy who was editing hockey at the time. I said, you put that in. He says, I can't. And I said, you put that in, or I'm going to walk the 400 miles down there, and I am going to scream at everybody. And so it was after it was all, and he managed to get the line reinserted. So I was proud of myself for getting that back in. That is pretty fantastic. And I just want to say, I don't know if you were aware of this, but there was a famous, famous, famous SI story through the years. I think the writer was Hank Hirsch 
and he wrote a lead and it was about, uh, he took the Beatles line, picture yourself on a boat on a river. Uh-huh. The editor inserted, picture yourself on a TK sized yacht on TK <laughs> body of water. Uh, and then I, I just want to say, I had one where I wrote about a uh, former Met outfielder, Derek Bell, and yeah. he listened to rap music. And I think it was Peter Carey, the editor, who had a question. And Linda Marsh, a fact checker, called me and said, I'm embarrassed to ask you this, but Peter wants to know, is it hip hip music or hip hop music? Well, uh, since we're telling stories, uh, I was doing a piece on John LeClaire of the Flyers. And he's a Vermonter. And... He had a charity golf tournament and he was friendly with members of the band Fish. Right. And somewhere in this piece, I mentioned that John LeClaire is friends with Fish. And uh, it's changed by the copy desk to F I S H. Oh, no. Because obviously I had spelled it P H I S H. Yeah. And so. I saw this in, in a fit version I, I, and I called somebody. I said, listen, you know, I think probably the sixth or seventh word I learned how to spell as a kindergartner was fish. Now, what makes you think now that I have decided to spell it a different way? Um, I, I just said, oh, what the hell? Let's spell it PH this time. And uh, come on. So so that was uh, that was my fish story. It is kind of funny, actually, looking back. People loved Sports Illustrated. And yet every writer you talk to will complain about the editing and talk yeah. about how heavy handed it was. And I wonder, like, looking back, do you feel like the editing was better than we thought it was? Oh, I thought it was good in the sense that if you hadn't seen something, and I'm not necessarily talking about line editing here, I think we're talking about different things. Mm. But if there was a hole in the story, you know, somebody would see that and say, gee, you know, what about this? And boy, it hadn't occurred to me. That's true. So yeah, uh, I, I thought the editors with virtually no exceptions were really smart. And if I didn't agree with something, I didn't agree with something. It wasn't because I was right and they were idiots. It's because two adults were having a professional disagreement. I I think a myth about the magazine was it was a writer's magazine. But yeah, I mean, there there, there was editing. And for the most part, they made me a better writer. I have a piece in front of me randomly sports illustrated back in 09 and uh the pens are mightier and your lead was jot down the time for history's sake 10 45 p.m june 12 2009 the stanley cup was awarded and the torch was passed all in one motion to a 21 year old who has been in the public eye so long that he was a person it's before he was truly a person Sidney crosby hoisted the famous 35 pound trophy marking the first extended sighting of the Penguins captain on Joe Lewis Arena ice since five-plus minutes into the second period of Game 7, when during a race for the puck near the boards in the neutral zone, Detroit's Johan Franzen pinned him against the dasher. Crosby glided haltingly to the bench on his right skate, grimacing, while most in the crowd of 20,000 roared approvingly. Schadenfreude is a predictable response with the cup on the line. He was half carried to the dressing room or possibly to Lords because he was back on the bench for the third period. Crosby did make a 32 second cameo on the ice midway through the period, but because he could neither stop nor turn on the injured left knee and skating only in a straight line against Henrik Zetterberg and Pavel Datsyuk is a recipe for disaster. He became a cheerleader. The Penguins to throw in the Red Wings in Detroit to aging barn two to one. And the final. all right, I think you're one of the great game writers certainly from my time at Sports Illustrated, where you covered events and made it feel personal, made it feel grand. When you recover a hockey game, what were the things you were looking for? Hockey is a game of flow. And unlike a football game or a baseball game where it's stop and start, there's a different feel to it. It's not a statistic statistical game in the way that we think. So I tried to avoid numbers. Uh, I, I tried to 
get a feel for the tempo of the game and, and for the moments in the game. And so if you collected enough moments, uh, you, you could piece together the story. Now, this is the, the, the 09 final where Crosby, after losing in 08 to the same Red Wings, finally wins. And it was a different kind of game that maybe should have had more emphasis on the save at the end uh, by Marc-Andre Fleury on Nick Lidstrom. But this is 09, where you could write that game story. Sports Illustrated, five years later, would not have wanted that story. It would have seemed dated by the time anyone read it, uh, except if they'd read it online. Uh, there wasn't that feeling in 09. So you could do that sort of game story in the way that Sports Illustrated had done Super Bowl stories that you would read uh, on the Thursday after the Sunday game or Verducci's World Series stuff, but it still felt, to use your word, big. And maybe it felt fresh. It's weird, actually. Because people say those types of stories are obsolete, and obviously they are obsolete because they don't really exist anymore. But I remember being a kid and reading, uh, whatever, Paul Zimmerman on the Steelers-Rams Super Bowl. I would read that five days after the Super Bowl. Now, I know what happened in the Super Bowl. I watched the Super Bowl. I read the New York Times the next day. But I still love those stories. I still love the details that nobody else had and the imagery and the photos. Why doesn't that work anymore? Maybe we not only knew the score of that Super Bowl, but um, because so much has been shown and discussed on various shows, the, the, the sprouting of, of sports media everywhere, that maybe it would seem old. Or maybe we don't have the same appreciation for it. Or we don't have the same attention span. Uh, there was a time, and I, I can't remember the year, I proposed that the magazine do a story on the Hanenkong ski race, which has all these elements to it because in Kitzbühel, I mean, it's the, big, it's the biggest ski downhill of the year, men's downhill. There's a great bar in Kitzbühel called the Londoner where skiers tend bar and accidents have happened. I forget the U.S. skier actually cut his hand on a broken glass. I mean, but there's a whole scene. And it's a scene that maybe you've seen the results if you care about skiing, but you probably haven't. But do it in old-fashioned SI way. Here's a big event. Here's the scene. Here's the town. Here's everything. And the response is, eh, well, we're not interested. So uh, there doesn't seem to be much appetite for it. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey. So how was the K-pop store? It was pretty great. I bought two NCT Dream albums, three NCT 127 albums, a Utah Nakamoto poster, a 1984 Michigan Panthers Anthony Carter jersey, a Jungwoo book, a How to Sing Like Jenny Kim instructional manual, and- Wait, wait. You bought a 1984 Michigan Panthers Anthony Carter jersey at the K-pop store? Well, actually, I bought it at RoyalRetros.com, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. But then, all the 13-year-old K-pop fanatics surrounded me and started tearing at the fabric while screaming, I love you, Doyoung! I love you, Doyoung! So I opened my own Royal Retros kiosk, and now I'm rich. This is just too weird. We K-pop fans never disappoint. I have a story in front of me that you wrote, and it's so vintage old school SI. <laughs> It's called The Remarkable Story of Tom Smallwood. From yes. the assembly line to the unemployment line to the PBA bowling yep. championship at a time when, you know, SI would do a bowling story. And your lead, I just loved. The Remarkable Story of Tom Smallwood could be told as a modern day fairy tale. So maybe we should begin with a brave wooden soldier. 
a 10 pin that wobbles but stands tall after a bowling ball slams into the mates and sends them scurrying. The violence of the crash, not to mention the infernal racket, might make lesser pins faint, but not this one, all 15 lats inches of him. You see, sometimes a legend can rest on nothing more than more substantial than the base of a bowling pin. If a swaying 10 pin topples on Wes Mallet's first ball in the 10th frame 12 days before Christmas, and if Smallwood does not throw four late consecutive strikes to close out the PBA World Championship, an unemployed General Motors factory worker never becomes a bowling prince. The end. And you have this great, great, great profile about Tom Smallwood. Yeah. I'm going to ask just randomly, how did you end up writing a story about a bowling guy? Do you remember Project Detroit? I don't. Should I? Okay. <laughs> Probably not, but uh, this was across Time, Inc. And they were decided to focus on Detroit. And uh, there was an economic downturn. And so Time did stuff. And I presume people in Entertainment Weekly, I don't know. But SI, this was going to be a, uh, a Detroit story. And he had been a factory worker who been an amateur bowler. And suddenly, because he was talented, ends up on tour. And I went to outside of Vegas. They had the, the championship thing. And, and I went and covered it. What was interesting, though, I was very glad I was working for SI because when I took him out to dinner, his whole family came. So the expense account was, was not a problem. But I actually, I don't, I remember writing about him, but I didn't remember what I had written about him. And yeah, I, I kind of like that lead. Yeah, it's really, really good. Um, you, uh, you told me we did a Q and a years and years ago for my website and yeah. you'd been a columnist at the Montreal Gazette and you called yourself a shitty columnist. You said you were not a good columnist or you didn't yeah. think you were a particularly good columnist. I just want to say I have in front of me, December 11th, 1984, Michael Farber column, losing Carter, a heavy blow. And you wrote Gary Carter and Guy LaFleur are gone now replaced by spear carriers and honest journeymen and people who aren't even household names in their own households. That would be fine if this were Cleveland, but it's not. This is Montreal, damn it. A city that wants its star. An era officially ended last night when the Expos traded Carter to the New York Mets for UB Brooks, a third baseman who dabbles at shortstop and the rough equivalent of two broken bats and one resin bag. Indeed, this is unfair to people named Fitzgerald and Whittingham, who this summer and next may thrill the citizenry, citizenry with their heroics on the polyester playground in the East End. They may become important players, part of the water cooler conversation for many seasons, and the trading of Gary Carter may be one of those baseball blessings in disguise, a fresh start for a fading franchise. It may even make a certain perverse baseball sense. But on the human level, on the gut reaction level, for those who pay even a passing interest in the goings-ons chronicled in another part of this journal, something seems terribly wrong. A symbol has been traded for a bunch of baseball players. That's great. Yeah, well, once in a while, I, I cranked it up. What? But I also tell you, when the Expos traded Delino De Shields for Pedro Martinez, I ripped that deal. I mean, it's crazy. He can't even start for the Dodgers. He's five foot seven. He weighs 110 pounds. Uh, the Dodgers know about pitching. You know, they've traded a near all-star second baseman for a guy, uh, you know. So there you go. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I was, uh, you know, I, I grew up and, you know, some people, you know, everything was a take. And and Gary Carter kind of was a take, although I didn't say this was a hard, the worst trade for mankind. Uh, it wasn't a baseball deal. It was more that Guy Lafleur had retired and then resurfaced, and you know it was more about mourning for what for the past five years had been my city, a city that adores stars. Uh, it, it absolutely. You know, it, the sizzle has always worked here as well as the steak. So uh, that was from that perspective. And, and you can appreciate that. I was putting on my baseball expertise hat, ripping, ripping the acquisition of Pedro Martinez. So 
some people typed columns with their fists. You know, I, I kind of did it with my fingers. It was more, you know, the little jab, the little observation. So um, I was a better storyteller than it was a columnist. All right, Michael, I just want to say November 20th, 1993. Expos cash in by trading all-star infielder for middle reliever. This is all wrong. <laughs> traded Delano Shields to Los Angeles <laughs> for Pedro Martinez in two years, <laughs> which is the time it would take for Martinez to be eligible for the two scariest words outside of Mike Schmidt in franchise history, salary arbitration. <laughs> Expos bought time and they bought their kind of player, a live arm at a low wage, a, a, a string bean right-hander who is heavy with promise and light around the wallet. They also saved $2 million in 1994 salaries, which supposedly will be spread around the payroll so they don't have to eat any further into the backbone of the team. General Manager Dan Duquette called it a powerful economic move, trading to shield for a middle reliever, even one that projects for something grander, is a stab-in-the-dark deal by a franchise that keeps trading its assets for precious children. Is there something you'd like to say to Pedro Martinez all these years later? You know what? Uh, I'm sorry. And Pedro became a very important member of this community. I spent a lot of time in a particular church and did some great work in the community. And of course, when you played for the Expos, and at some point, I think this was in Sports Illustrated, I, I termed this franchise as Expos U because you'd get maybe get your four years, you'd graduate, and then you go to a real major league team. That was truly unfortunate. And yeah, the franchise left and fans stopped supporting it. But uh, I believe Major League Baseball quit on the Expos before the Expos quit on Montreal. If Major League Baseball expanded tomorrow and they announced, we're bringing back the Expos to Montreal, we're going to build a new stadium, retractable roof, et cetera, et cetera. Would the team do well? Initially, yeah, I, I think so. The other thing to keep in mind is Montreal is not a terribly rich city, and people are not lavish with their spending beyond the Canadians. And I, I think there would be some real economic challenges here, including the Canadian dollar and the fact that the Expos couldn't sign free agents, really. I mean, the whole Reggie Jackson thing was that slap in the face in 76 before he signed with the Yankees. He came here. The Expos thought they'd have a great chance of, of signing him. And basically, Reggie played them. And again, that predates my time in Montreal. But the Expos, the nostalgia for the Expos is, is remarkable. And how beloved this franchise has become uh, now that it's only a memory. But it was a great time. Uh, I don't know. Did you ever see a game here? I did. At one time, it was the most fun you could possibly have at a baseball game. And I'd put it up against Wrigley or uh, any place else. And it just uh, it just vanished. It, it was some of it was stupid, but it was our stupid. You know, the, the, the caps, the scoreboard chickens. I mean, you know, the stuff that went on here. It was absolutely great fun, and uh, it's remarkable that uh, in death, uh, maybe it was a good career move. When you got to Montreal from the record, you were a baseball writer, technically, correct? I was transitioning baseball writer into columnist, yeah. When you arrived in Montreal, what was your hockey knowledge, and what was the learning curve for hockey? Well, I covered the Rangers one year, um, but, you know, when I grew up, and I presume you grew up, you were a seasonal sports fan. Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever sport was, you knew about it. I'm sure you knew hockey, right? Mm, I knew I liked the Islanders, and I knew five players on their roster. Okay, so you like the Islanders. But, you know, I if it was basketball and hockey season, I'd watch that. And so... Uh, it was having to learn about the Canadians and more about the Canadians. Of course, I knew about the Canadians, but I spent lots of time in the morgue at the newspaper, you know, reading stories and learning the history because I didn't want to be the American outsider and somebody who would come in and, oh, yeah, but this is how we do it in New Jersey. And this is how we do it in the States. No, I, if you know, you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. 
So I spent a lot of time you know, trying to figure it out. And it was really lucky because the Canadians won the last of their four cups that year. Plus the Expos were fabulous. I mean, the 79 team that ended up uh, losing out to Pittsburgh, but baseball was, was just great at that time. So it was in, that was an easy transition. Of course, coming to a city where the principal language was French, which I hadn't studied. I studied a different language in high school and one year university. That was an adjustment. And, you know, learning about Canada and actually forcing myself to watch Canadian news. You know, okay, you know, it's six o'clock or seven o'clock. Let's watch Cronkite. Well, you know, that's not helping me. So, you know, now I have to watch this. And, oh, okay, now they're talking about some ridings in Saskatchewan. I don't know what a riding is. I know there's an election. A riding, maybe that's some rural district. Well, a riding is what they call an electoral district. I didn't know. I mean, there's so much I didn't know. And, you know, I had to figure it out. I finally, by the way, became a citizen, Canadian citizen, six years ago. The interesting thing is, after the age of 65, you don't have to take a citizenship test. So I didn't have to, like, you know, like, oh, I could have passed it. I mean, that $20 bill, a woman on that, yeah, that's Celine Dion. Yeah, it must be. This is kind of random. You wrote a decent amount. I did a search, and Gary Carter actually pops up, you know, in columns and in stuff you've written through the years, yeah. uh, through years in Montreal fairly regularly. It's funny, because I wrote a book about the 86 Mets, and Carter really, he's a big deal in New York, but he's still kind of a rental. How do you explain that thing Montreal had for Gary Carter? Gary tried to learn some French. I mean, he tried to meet the city on its terms. It's the reason why Rusty Staub, another Met, was so beloved here. You know, he made an effort. You know, so that was a very public Gary Carter. He was viewed differently in the clubhouse. If you walked into the Expos clubhouse at Olympic Stadium, his was the first seat to your left. And his teammates thought he wanted that seat because media had to go buy it. And his nickname was Lights, as in Lights Action Camera. Yeah. I remember he ended up buying director's chairs for all his teammates to have at their stalls in the clubhouse with their names on them. And even he was resented for that because they thought he was showing off. So his was a complicated legacy. I mean, he was viewed as a clubhouse lawyer, but the outpouring of affection when he passed, I wasn't listening to talk radio at that time. I just said, you know, why am I doing this? Why do I need to? And when Carter died, I made a point. And the outpouring of grief uh, was just, so exceptional and, you know, whitewashing of any personal flaws. And the only other time to go back to the people that Montreal ended up missing, Carter and Lafleur, was when Lafleur passed in 2022. It's interesting because with the Mets, he was strongly disliked in the clubhouse. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a nickname Lights. Here, his nickname was, like here in New York, his nickname was uh, Teeth and camera Carter. <laughs> it almost felt like he wasn't in on the joke to a certain degree. Like he actually, I feel like his earnestness was so unusual in that world that everything went over his head a little bit. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, I didn't see him as naive. Um, you know, I thought maybe he tried a little too hard at times and you saw him. I mean, he was a gamer. Yeah. And uh, I guess you have to be to be a catcher. And by the way, uh, I loaned your book on the Mets to Brad Wilkerson. Oh, and he never returned it. He probably never read it, though. I hope he read that. And I hope he read football for a buck. Oh, thank you. Because I knew John F. Bassett a little bit. Oh, man. And went down to do a story on the Tampa Bay Bandits. And he shared a story with me. And if you have time. Please. And you will indulge me. I will tell you a story that John F. Bassett told to me. He used to own the Toronto Northmen mm -hmm. 
who became the Memphis Southmen when the Canadian government essentially kicked them out um, because there was a threat to the CFL. So now he's owning a team in Memphis and Elvis Presley used to go to the games, sit in the owner's box. One day a woman, one of the servers comes in and says, uh, and would you like anything, Mr. Presley? He says, yeah, I'd like a pizza. Okay, she disappears, comes back 45 minutes later with a pizza. And he airs her out in John F. Bassett's telling because it's taking her 45 minutes to deliver his pizza. She leaves without saying a word. And Bassett turns to Elvis and says, listen, uh, I don't know where she got the pizza. We don't have any in the stadium. I suspect she left, went to a pizza parlor, paid her own money, and then came back gave it to you, and you just aired her out. And Elvis, he said, was very apologetic. He said, oh, this is terrible. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Can you get her name and her address? And I want to apologize. So they found her name and address. And the next day when she woke up, there was a Cadillac parked in her driveway. Holy crap. So, you know, if you screw up, Jeff, that's the way you go. You apologize with a Cadillac in the driveway. So that was El so that was the Elvis story told to me by the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits, who, and you will appreciate that, ripped uh, your favorite New Jersey Generals owner, Donald Trump. Back then, he was bad-mouthing Trump all the time. To me, John Bassett is a, is an, is a hero. I was going to say an American hero. He was Canadian, but he is a hero because even now, when I see people cower before Trump, which it seems like 99.9% .9 of people do, Bassett was a guy who refused to do that. And I forever will admire him for that. I also want to say, March 5th, 1983, Bassett's bandits set to plunder new football league, Michael Farber. <laughs> Bachman, the lead, a man dressed as an outlaw. No, it wasn't Herschel Walker walked into John F. Bassett's office Thursday afternoon to model the mascot's outfit for the Tampa Bay Bandits of the new United States Football League. Bassett, his cowboy booted feet on his desk, was suitably impressed. The only thing I'd add, said Bassett, managing general partner of the Bandits, is a garter on the sleeve, like the one on the Sundancers the cheerleaders wear. The way it symbolizes you've plundered them. Johnny Bassett knows sex sells. I read that lead and I was thinking, is the day of access, those days of access, where you're doing a story on John Bassett and you hang around his office for a bunch of hours, you do a story about Guy Lafleur and you have lunch with Guy Lafleur. Is that dead? Is that just over? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it is. It's, <clears throat> you know, when Pat Jordan, one of the great SI writers who's rarely mentioned now, which is unfortunate, you know, drives Tom Seaver to the ballpark. Now, I'll give you a ride. Yeah, I caught the tail end of it. You had some of it, I presume, yeah. because more than Nashville, you had it at, at SI. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and you can say, well, did we trade on it? You know, was access journalism what made the magazine good? Yeah, I, I think it certainly helped. But yeah, now you don't get that access unless you are a media partner. You see that on what you're looking at and on TV, on panel shows and pregame shows. I mean, if you're a partner in the league, you might get access. Uh, but it's become more and more difficult. Pete Rose once said, the only thing a sports writer can do for you is make you money. In his case, it wasn't true at all. Um, but that was the feeling at the time uh, that, gee, the publicity was good. It was going to increase your visibility increased your endorsements. Uh, that's no longer seen that way. People make a lot of money and they don't need all the extracurricular stuff. I have a friend named Michael Lewis, not Moneyball Michael Lewis, also a journalist. And uh, he's a huge hockey guy. When I told him I was having you on, I asked him for his thoughts and observations. And he said, Farber wrote one of my favorite lines ever about a hockey player slash goon named Todd Marchman. He's been suspended more times in disbelief. Which is now, a, go ahead. It's Brian Marchment, now the late Brian Marchment, Todd Marchant, a very different player. But yeah, Brian Marchment. Wait, so I, this is, you're going to be like, oh, that's a ridiculous question. But you're you, 
you're writing yeah. about someone. How does he's been suspended more times in disbelief even enter your brain? How do lines come into your head? Um, when I grew up and you grew up in a similar area, channel five, channel nine, channel 11, right? Mm -hmm. In New York. And on Saturday mornings, like at 11 o'clock, not every week, but Marx Brothers movies. And I used to watch the Marx Brothers. And what they did with language, you know, was take the language and like a clown at a birthday party for a kid, twist it into different shapes. And so I think that started it the way language was malleable and how many things you could do with it. And Brian Marchman, rest his soul, the way he checked got him in trouble all the time. I mean, he was a, a dirty player, not a bad guy, just a dirty player and was suspended for it. And so, okay, now you're thinking suspension. What gets suspended? And so you make the connections, uh, the neural connections, as it were. And so that's it, it. It pops up. I mean, one word leads to another. And I'm not sure how you figure stuff out. But some of that goes on. I mean, you make connections all the time. When I was a kid, I read feverishly these books, the complete handbook of, and it would be baseball, basketball, football, hockey. Xander Hollander was the editor. And right. be these books that came out every year and I rushed to Walden Books to get it. And I still remember, you know, uh, Pearl Washington, bigger bust than Mount Rushmore. Mike Smreck, <laughs> Center with Lakers. It was Smreck as in wreck. Kevin yeah. Duckworth, how much is a duck worth? Not much. It's like those lines and those ways of phrasing, they infiltrate your head when you're young. And it doesn't mean you steal them, but you start seeing what you can do with language. And maybe that's the same sure. thing you watching, watching TV and coming up with these sort of connectors that 20 years later, you're, you're using, they're influencing you still. Well, Lee Montville, our colleague, when he was writing for the Boston Evening Globe, this is not even the Globe as we know it. It had an, uh, an afternoon edition. I mean, I would read him and I would marvel at how he had thought of this. You know, what would lead him to see something and, and think of it in this way and write it in a certain way? So we're all a product of, of our influences and we all... Certainly the first couple of years, you know, we take here, we take here, we take here, we take here. And at some point we start synthesizing it and we develop a voice. And I've, I've talked to some younger writers and I say, listen, and this might be come right from Montville. It takes you at least five years to find your voice, who you are. And at first kind of you're doing this and you're kind of posing as that. And then you're taking some of this. But, you know, if you have the ability to stick with it and the ability to expand and, and you're trying to be true to yourself, then you find it. How long did it take you to find a voice? Sometimes I feel like I'm still looking for it. Don't you think when you're a young writer, you think you have it and then you realize you didn't have it? Like I thought at the Tennessean, I was this great writer and I wasn't. I was just kind of imitating what I thought a great writer was. Later on, you just become more natural. I didn't ever think I was a great writer until, yeah. you know, you know, sometimes I still, you know, I, I still wonder, but I would read, oh, I don't know, Montville or Bill Knack or another one of our yeah. colleagues. And, and someone say, I could never do anything as well. And if you keep working at it and, you know, again, after five years, you wake up one day and say, gee, that may not be as good as Montville stuff, but it's pretty good. And so I came in with a, not the bravado you came in. In a lot of ways, the best thing for me was going to Sports Illustrated. You know, I remember um, being promoted and they used to fly all the writers in for the holiday yeah. state of SI. And I remember being in a room for the first time and it was, you know, guys like you and Montville and Riley and Russian and, you know, whoever, name it one giant after another. And if you want to be put in check and have any cockiness squashed, have that experience. And I feel like being at SI and seeing all the writers who are so much better than me 
maybe I realized I wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was. Wait, let me ask you, I, I'm required on this podcast to ask everyone this question. It's my final yeah. question for you. What's the best confrontation, pissed off athlete, pissed off coach, whatever story you have from your career? Dick Williams, <laughs> 1981. Okay. The lobby of the old Marriott in Atlanta. Dick and I didn't quite see eye to eye on a number of things. For those who don't know, Dick Williams, former Expos manager. Yeah, Expos Hall of Famer, I believe. A's, Red Sox, great manager. And I had written something. They, they Expos had played the infield in in Dodger Stadium and in a situation and gotten beat by a, a little bloop that landed on the infield dirt. And Andre Dawson had been critical of it. I wrote something about that. So now I think the team, and you flew with the team that had flown in from Houston and Atlanta. And for some reason, things weren't ready. Keys weren't ready. It's two in the morning. And so Dick, who you know, would like a, a drink on the plane, is in a foul mood and he sees me and he physically attacked me in the lobby. Whoa. And Ozzie Virgil, you might remember the name. Of course. Was a, then an exposed coach, actually pulled Dick off me. And Dick was fired after that. Might have been three weeks after that. And I can't say I was terribly sad uh, when, when Dick was gone, replaced by Jim Fanning, who had been a long time in the front office, lovely man. So now we're in Philadelphia, his first game, and there's rain on and off. And I'm in his office till like 10 minutes before the game starts. And it's been so long since he's been in uniform. He asks me, well, when I, I tie my shoes, does the flap go over or under the laces? Oh, no. So... Naturally, my lead was the Expos have hired a manager who doesn't know how to tie his own shoes. <laughs> and I liked Jim, but I just couldn't help being a, a smart aleck. Wait, I can't, I can't let this go 100%. What, um, you're Michael Farber. This is 1981. Yep. Are you about to turn 30? Dick Williams, your 50-something-year-old manager, which doesn't sound that old now, but sounded older. Than, like, is, is attacking you. Are you allowed to punch back? Do you just have to take it? Are you in utter Oh, he's a lot stronger than I was. You know, yeah. He'd been at Major League Baseball. He's an athlete. And so, yeah. Now, the question was, why didn't I make a fuss? I know somebody from the Expos organization saw it, and I know word got back to John McHale, who was then president general manager of the team. But, you know, why don't you make a fuss legally or otherwise. Well, that's not how things were done. Yeah. I mean, it was okay. You know, you're pissed off and maybe you got out of hand, um, but it was a different world back then. Did you ever run into Dick Williams again? No, I'm not sure. After he got fired, he was managing, he ended up managing San Diego, uh, 84 World Series. I was not at that. So, no, I can't say that uh, we ever saw each other again. It is possible, much like Rosebud, his last <laughs> word, Barber, and then he faded off. Well, my guy, I appreciate your time a whole lot. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge admirer of your work, obviously, and your career, and I share your nostalgia for Sports Illustrated. It, uh, it still breaks my heart a little bit. Yeah, fun talking to you, Jeff. Thanks. I want to thank today's guest, Michael Farber, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Michael on Twitter at MichaelFarber3. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding. <laughs>